Let me tell you a story, podcast number 103. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Happy spring to you. The snow is melting off the mountains, down into the rivers. We live by a canal and are enjoying the return of water. And like every year, along with the water, come the geese and the ducks and the frogs. Also with the return of spring, we have lots of birds nesting and singing in the trees, purple iris in full bloom, and a nice long mottled snake sunning on our driveway. I don't know what kind it was, but I sure hope it returned to wherever it came from. In this podcast, Steve and I will continue where we left off in our previous podcast. He'll be reading part two of Elder Brown's Backslide by Harry Stilwell Edwards, and I'll read chapter 34, or maybe a portion of chapter 34 from Winds of Wyoming. And one more chapter, and we'll be finished. Continuing in Elder Brown, I'll read the last sentence from the last time. Thoroughly exhausted at last, he wearily straddled his saddle, and with his chin upon his breast, resumed the early morning tenor of his way. Good morning, sir. Elder Brown leaned over the little pine picket which divided the bookkeeper's department of a Macon warehouse from the room in general and surveyed the well-dressed back of a gentleman who was busily figuring at a desk within. The apartment was carpetless, and the dust of a decade lay deep on the old books, shelves, and the familiar advertisements of guano and fertilizers which decorated the room. An old stove, rusty with the nicotine contributed by farmers during the previous season while waiting by its glowing sides for their cotton to be sold, stood straight up in a bed of sand and festoons of cobwebs clung to the upper sashes of the murky windows. The lower sash of one window had been raised, and in the yard without, nearly an acre in extent, lay a few bales of cotton with jagged holes in their ends just as the sampler had left them. Elder Brown had time to notice all these familiar points, for the figure at the desk kept serenely at its task and deigned no reply. Good morning, sir, said Elder Brown again, in his most dignified tones. Is Mr. Thomas in? Good morning, sir, said the figure. I'll wait on you in a minute. The minute passed, and four more joined it. Then the desk man turned. Well, sir, what can I do for you? The elder was not in the best of humor when he arrived, and his state of mind had not improved. He waited a full minute as he surveyed the man of business. I thought I might be able to make some arrangements with you to get some money, but I reckon I was mistaken. 
The warehouse man came nearer. This is Mr. Brown, I believe. I did not recognize you at once. You are not in often to see us. No, my wife usually tends to the town business while I run the church and farm. Got a fall from my donkey this morning, he said, noticing a quizzical, interrogating look upon the face before him, and fell square on the hat. He made a pretense of smoothing it. The man of business had already lost interest. How much money will you want, Mr. Brown? Well, about seven hundred dollars, said the elder, replacing his hat and turning a furtive look upon the warehouse man. The other was tapping with his pencil upon the little shelf lying across the rail. I can get you five hundred, but I order have seven. Can't arrange for that amount. Wait till later in the season and come again. Money is very tight right now. How much cotton will you raise? Well, I count on a hundred bales. And you can't get the seven hundred dollars? Like to oblige you, but can't right now. We'll fix it for you later on. Well, said the elder slowly, fix up the papers for five and I'll make it go as far as possible. The papers were drawn. A note was made out for $552.50, for the interest was at one and a half percent for seven months, and a mortgage on ten mules belonging to the elder was drawn and signed. The elder then promised to send his cotton to the warehouse to be sold in the fall, and with a curt anything else and a thank ye, that's all, the two parted. Elder Brown now made an effort to recall the supplemental commissions shouted to him upon his departure, intending to execute them first, and then take his written list item by item. His mental resolves had just reached this point when a new thought made itself known. Passers-by were puzzled to see the old man suddenly snatch his headpiece off and peer with an intent and awestruck air into its irregular caverns. Some of them were shocked when he suddenly and vigorously shouted, Hannah Maria Jiminy! Gall darn and blue blazes! He had suddenly remembered having placed his memoranda in that hat and as he studied its empty depths, his mind pictured the important scrap fluttering along the sandy scene of his early morning tumble. It was this that caused him to graze an oath with less margin than he had allowed himself in twenty years. What would the old lady say? Alas, Elder Brown knew too well. What she would not say was what puzzled him. But as he stood bareheaded in the sunlight, a sense of utter desolation came and dwelt with him. His eye rested upon sleeping Balaam anchored to a post in the street. And so, as he recalled the treachery that lay at the base of all his affliction, gloom was added to the desolation. To turn back and search for the lost paper would have been worse than useless. Only one course was open to him, and at it went the leader of his people. He called at the grocery. He invaded the recesses of the dry goods establishments. He ransacked the hardware stores, and wherever he went, he made life a burden for the clerks, overhauling showcases and pulling down whole shelves of stock. Occasionally, an item of his memoranda would come to light, and thrusting his hand into his capacious pocket, where lay the proceeds of his check, he would pay for it upon the spot, and insist upon having it rolled up. 
To the suggestion of the slave whom he had in charge for the time being that the articles be laid aside until he had finished, he would not listen. Now you look here, Sonny, he said in the dry goods store. I'm conducting this revival and I don't need no help in my line. You just tie them stockings up and let me have them. Then I know I've got em. As each purchase was promptly paid for and change had to be secured, the clerk earned his salary for that day at least. So it was when, near the heat of the day, the good man arrived at the drugstore at the last and only unvisited division of trade. He made his appearance equipped with half a hundred packages, which nestled in his arms and bulged out about the sections of his clothing that boasted of pockets. As he deposited his deck load upon the counter, great drops of perspiration rolled down his face and over his waterlogged collar to the floor. There was something exquisitely refreshing in the great glasses of foaming soda that a spruce young man was drawing from a marble fountain, above which half a dozen polar bears in an ambitious print were disporting themselves. There came a break in the run of customers, and the spruce young man, having swept the foam from the marble, dexterously lifted a glass from the revolving rack which had rinsed it with a fierce little stream of water and asked mechanically, as he caught the intense look of the perspiring elder, "'Want syrup, sir?' Now it had not occurred to the elder to drink soda, but the suggestion, coming as it did in his exhausted state, was overpowering. He drew near awkwardly, put on his glasses, and examined the list of syrups with great care. The young man, being for the moment at leisure, surveyed critically the gaunt figure, the faded bandana, the antique claw-hammer coat, and the battered stovepipe hat, with a gradually relaxing countenance. He even called the prescription clerk's attention by a cough and a quick jerk of the thumb. The prescription clerk smiled freely and continued his assaults upon a piece of blue mass. "'I reckon,' said the elder, resting his hands upon his knees and bending down to the list. "'You may give me sarsaparilla and a little strawberry. "'Sarsaparilla's good for the blood this time of year, "'and strawberry's good any time.' "'The spruce young man let the syrup stream into the glass "'as he smiled affably. "'Thinking, perhaps, to draw out the odd character, "'he ventured upon a jest himself, "'repeating a pun invented by the man "'who made the first soda fountain.' With a sweep of his arm, he cleared away the swarm of insects as he remarked, People who like a fly in theirs are easily accommodated. It was from sheer good nature only that Elder Brown replied, with his usual broad social smile. Well, a fly now and then don't hurt nobody. Now, if there is anybody in the world who prides himself on knowing a thing or two, it is the spruce young man who presides over a soda fountain. This particular young gentleman did not even deem a reply necessary. He vanished an instant, and when he returned, a close observer might have seen that the mixture in the glass he bore had slightly changed color and increased in quantity. But the elder saw only the whizzing stream of water dart into its center, and the rosy foam rise and tremble on the glass's rim. The next instant he was holding his breath and sipping the cooling drink. As Elder Brown paid his small score, he was at peace with the world. I firmly believe that when he had finished his trading, and the little blue-stringed packages had been stored away, 
could the poor donkey have made his appearance at the door and gazed with his meek, fawn-like eyes into his master's, he would have obtained full and free forgiveness. Elder Brown paused at the door as he was about to leave. A rosy-cheeked schoolgirl was just lifting a creamy mixture to her lips before the fountain. It was a pretty picture, and he turned back, resolved to indulge in one more glass of the delightful beverage before beginning his long ride homeward. Fix it up again, Sonny, he said, renewing his broad, confiding smile as the spruce young man poised the glass inquiringly. The living automation went through the same motions as before, and again Elder Brown quaffed the fatal mixture. What a singular power is habit! Up to this time, Elder Brown had been entirely innocent of transgression. But with the old alcoholic fire in his veins, twenty years dropped from his shoulders, and a feeling came over him familiar to every man who has been in his cups. As a matter of fact, the elder would have been a confirmed drunkard twenty years before, had his wife been less strong-minded. She took the reins into her own hands when she found that his business and strong drink did not mix well, worked him into the church, sustained his resolutions by making it difficult and dangerous for him to get to his toddy. She became the business head of the family, and he the spiritual. Only at rare intervals did he ever backslide during the twenty years of the new era and Mrs. Brown herself used to say that the sugar in hisn turned to gall before the backslide ended. People who knew her never doubted it. But Elder Brown's sin during the remainder of the day contained an element of responsibility. As he moved majestically down toward where Balaam slept in the sunlight, he felt no fatigue. There was a glow upon his cheekbones and a faint tinge upon his prominent nose. He nodded familiarly to people as he met them, and saw not the look of amusement which succeeded astonishment upon the various faces. When he reached the neighborhood of Balaam, it suddenly occurred to him that he might have forgotten some one of his numerous commissions, and he paused to think. Then a brilliant idea arose in his mind. He would forestall blame and disarm anger with kindness. He would purchase Hannah a bonnet. What woman's heart ever failed to soften at sight of a new bonnet? As I have stated, the elder was a man of action. He entered a store near at hand. Good morning, said an affable gentleman with a Hebrew countenance, approaching. Good morning, good morning, said the elder, piling his bundles on the counter. I hope you are well, Elder Brown extended his hand fervidly. Quite well, I thank you. What... And the little wife, said Elder Brown, affectionately, retaining the Jew's hand. Quite well, sir. And the little ones, quite well, I hope, too. Yes, sir, all well, thank you. Something I can do for you? The affable merchant was trying to recall his customer's name. Not now, not now, thank ye. If you please to let my bundle stay until I come back, can I show you something, hat? coat? Not now. Be back, Bimeby. Was it chance or fate that brought Elder Brown in front of a bar? The glasses shone bright upon the shelves as the swinging door flapped back to let out a coatless clerk who passed himself with a rush, chewing upon a farewell mouthful of brown bread and bologna. Elder Brown beheld for an instant the familiar scene within. 
the screws of his resolution had been loosened. At sight of the glistening bar, the whole moral structure of twenty years came tumbling down. Mechanically, he entered the saloon and laid a silver quarter upon the bar as he said, A little whiskey and sugar. The arms of the bartender worked like a faker's in a sideshow as he set out the glass with its little quota of short sweetening and a cut glass decanter and sent a half tumbler of water spinning along from the upper end of the bar with a diamond change. Whiskey is higher than used to be, said Elder Brown, but the bartender was taking another order and did not hear him. Elder Brown stirred away the sugar and let a steady stream of red liquid flow into the glass. He swallowed the drink as unconcernedly as though his morning Todd had never been suspended and pocketed the change. But it ain't any better than it was, he concluded, as he passed out. He did not even seem to realize that he had done anything extraordinary. There was a millinery store up the street, and thither with uncertain step he wended his way, feeling a little more elate and altogether sociable. A pretty black-eyed girl, struggling to keep down her mirth, came forward and faced him behind the counter. Elder Brown lifted his faded hat with the politeness, if not the grace, of a Castilian, and made a sweeping bow. Again he was in his element, but he did not speak. A shower of odds and ends, small packages, thread, needles, and buttons, released from their prison, rattled down about him. The girl laughed. She could not help it, and the elder, leaning his hand on the counter, laughed too until several other girls came halfway to the front. Then they, hiding behind counters and suspended cloaks, laughed and snickered until they reconvulsed the elders vis-a-vis, who had been making desperate efforts to resume her demure appearance. "'Let me help you, sir,' she said, coming from behind the counter, upon seeing Elder Brown beginning to adjust his spectacles for a search. He waved her back majestically. "'No, my dear, no. Can't allow it. You mount sal them purty fingers.' No, ma'am. No gentleman or lower lady do such a thing. The elder was gently forcing the girl back to her place. Leave it to me. I've picked up bigger things than them. Picked myself up this morning. Balaam, you don't know Balaam. He's my donkey. He tumbled me over his head in the sand this morning. And Elder Brown had to resume an upright position until his paroxysm of laughter had passed. You see this old hat? Extending it, half full of packages. I fell clear into it, just as clean into it as them things that they fall out in it. He laughed again, and so did the girls. But, my dear, I wailed half the hide off of him for it. Oh, sir, how could you? Indeed, sir, I think you did wrong. The poor brute did not know what he was doing, I dare say, and probably he has been a faithful friend. The girl cast her mischievous eyes toward her companions, who snickered again. The old man was not conscious of the sarcasm. He only saw reproach. His face straightened, and he regarded the girl soberly. Maybe you're right, my dear. Maybe I oughtn't. I am sure of it, said the girl. But now don't you want to buy a bonnet or a cloak to carry home to your wife? Well, you're whistling now, Bertie. That's my intention. Set them all out. 
Again, the elder's face shone with delight. And I don't want no one-hoss bonnet, neither. Of course not. Now here is one, pink silk with delicate pale blue feathers. Just the thing for the season. We have nothing more elegant in stock. Elder Brown held it out, upside down, at arm's length. Well, now, that's southern-like. It will suit a sorter red-headed woman? A perfectly sober man would have said the girl's corsets must have undergone a terrible strain, but the elder did not notice her dumb convulsion. She answered heroically, Perfectly, sir. It is an exquisite match. I think you're whistling again. Nancy's head's red, red as a woodpeck's. Sorrel's only halfway to the color of her top knot. And it do seem like red ought to suit red. Nancy's red and the hat's red. Like goes with like and birds of a feather flock together. The old man laughed until his cheeks were wet. The girl, beginning to feel a little uneasy and seeing a customer entering, rapidly fixed up the bonnet, took $15 out of a $20 bill, and calmly asked the elder if he wanted anything else. He thrust his chain somewhere into his clothes and beat a retreat. It had occurred to him that he was nearly drunk. Elder Brown's step began to lose its buoyancy. He found himself utterly unable to walk straight. There was an uncertain straddle in his gait that carried him from one side of the walk to the other and caused people whom he met to cheerfully yield him plenty of room. Balaam saw him coming. Poor Balaam! He had made an early start that day, and for hours he stood in the sun awaiting relief. When he opened his sleepy eyes and raised his expressive ears to a position of attention, the old familiar coat and battered hat of the elder were before him. He lifted up his honest voice and cried aloud for joy. The effect was electrical for one instant. Elder Brown surveyed the beast with horror, but again in his understanding there rang out the trumpet words. Drunk, 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 unk, unk, unk. He stooped instinctively for a missile with which to smite his accuser, but brought up suddenly with a jerk and a handful of sand. Straightening himself up with a majestic dignity, he extended his right hand impressively. You're a gall-darn liar, Balaam, and blast your old buttons. You can walk home by yourself, for I'm danged if you ride me per step. Surely Coriolanus never turned his back upon Rome with a grander dignity than sat upon the old man's form as he faced about and left the brute to survey with anxious eyes the new departure of his master. He saw the elder zigzag along the street and beheld him about to turn a friendly corner. Once more he lifted up his mighty voice. Drunk, 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 unk, unk. Once more the elder turned with lifted hand and shouted back, You're a liar, Balaam. Gall darn you. You're an infamous liar. Then he passed from view. Chapter 34 of Winds of Wyoming Mom! Mike dropped to his knees beside Laura. What happened? She groaned. 
locate that man. Find him. Who? She closed her eyes. Mike checked her pulse. It was strong. At least she was alive. Hearing the calves, he glanced over at the truck. Another explosion split the air and lit the sky. Someone was standing by his vehicle. Mike moved closer, hearing a male voice curse and yell. That's the last time you tell me what to do. Mike crouched, peering through the smoky gloom at what he thought were two people on the ground. Dimple and Kate? One of them sat up. He crawled closer. In the light of the next detonation, he realized Kate was the one standing, her crutch aimed like a weapon at a man. Drop it, Nielsen, the man said. You're going with me. You belong to me. You hurt my friends, Kate said. Forget your stupid friends. We're leaving now. Kate gripped the crutch with both hands. The sheriff had said Ramsey was injured, but she'd seen no bandages, no scars, no limp. And Dimple's hit to his backside hadn't fazed him. His injury had to be on his abdomen. She stepped closer. A series of furious detonations convulsed the smoky night. The calves bounced against the rails, loudly broadcasting their fear. Ramsey circled, the knife in his hand reflecting flashes of light. Searching for an opening, Kate kept her back to the truck. How's it feel to be on the other side of the bars, Jerry? To wear orange instead of a uniform. Shut your stupid mouth. How'd you get that white hair? Did one of those mean inmates scare you? It's not white, it's... He swore and lunged at her. Kate shoved the crutch into his midsection. He grabbed it and bashed her against the truck. She held tight, fighting to stay upright. Thrusting the crutch aside, he reached for her throat. She shoved her forearms between his and knocked his hands apart. He came at her again. And then someone was on top of Ramsey, dragging him from her, wrestling him to the ground. They rolled at her feet, grunting and swearing. Ramsey felt a long lump under his shoulder. It had to be the knife he dropped in the dirt. Releasing his assailant, he grabbed the knife and shoved it into his body. The men grunted and loosened his grip. Ramsey yanked the knife out and staggered to his feet, holding his abdomen. Sucking in the acrid air, he stared at Kate, barely able to see her through the haze. He'd been willing to give her his name, to make her a legitimate woman, but she turned on him. He started toward her. It was the last thing he did. He'd make her pay. Pay for killing his kid. Pay for getting him fired. Pay for his time in that hellhole jail. Pay for... A field light hummed to life above him. He shaded his eyes, turned from the light, and stumbled into the dark woods beyond the fairgrounds. Mike sat up. Kate was leaning against the truck, breathing hard. She looked at him. You okay? I'm fine. He'd worry about his arm later. Which way to go? He jumped to his feet. She pointed toward the woods. He grabbed a flashlight from the truck's glove compartment and charged after the fleeing figure. The man was yards ahead of him. If he made it to the trees, finding him in the woods would be tough. Mike lengthened his stride. He was narrowing the gap when something darted from the bushes. Whatever it was collided with the fugitive. He ran to where two men grappled in the dirt, grunting and wheezing beside an overturned wheelchair. 
Mike shined the flashlight on them, wanting to help, yet knowing he could make things worse for his friend. But apparently, Coach didn't need his help. In no time at all, he twisted the man's arms behind his back and wrestled the knife from his hand. The man kicked and screamed obscenities. Shut up! Coach ground his face into the dirt, or you'll get a taste of real pain. You, you made fast work of that guy. Breathing hard, Mike knelt beside Coach. I always wanted to wrestle dirty, Coach grinned, apparently holding his struggling captive with little effort. How'd you know what was going on back here? My son had to use the restroom, Coach said, so I took him to the men's room. His captive squirmed. Coach dug his elbow into his back, and the movement stopped. When we came out, I saw Dimple dash behind the stands with a crutch in her hand. I had a feeling something wasn't right. She never moves that fast. So I dropped Donnie off and raced over here. Mike heard a noise and flashed the light at the trees. Using both crutches, Kate made her way toward them. Mike, firemen are helping your mom and Dimple and an ambulance is... She stopped, peering at the men on the ground. Even in the poor lighting, he could see the wide grin that broke across her face. Wow, coach, it's true. He who sees the invisible can do the impossible. Kate sat alone in the hospital waiting room, flipping through magazines. Three of her friends had been hurt because of her. The medics had told her none of them sustained serious wounds. Still, Dimple, Laura, and Mike had all been attacked and traumatized by Ramsey. It had been such a good day, but it ended all wrong. Care for some company? She looked up, surprised to see Mike standing in front of her his bandaged arm encased in a sling. She moved magazines aside. Have a seat. I was thinking we might get some ice cream in the cafeteria. After all, it's the 4th of July. He eyed the wall clock. For a few more minutes, anyway, I'll buy. He'd barely spoken to her today. Now, he wanted to buy her ice cream. She stood. What do they say about your arm? The doctor told me I was lucky. She'd seen a lot worse knife wounds. So that's good news. Really good news. Thank you for tackling Ramsey. You saved my life. They ate ice cream without speaking until Mike dropped his spoon in his bowl. Whole thing was my fault. I should have sat with you and the others to watch the fireworks. Then you wouldn't have been attacked and Mom and Dimple wouldn't have been hurt. But you had to play in the band, Kate shrugged. Ramsey would have caused trouble somewhere, sometime. He was furious with you for chasing him out of the cabin when I first arrived at the ranch. And he vowed to repay me for a host of offenses. I knew he'd return. She smiled. Thanks to you, I'm alive tonight. I had vowed to fight him to the death if he came for me again. Why was he after you? Mike looked confused. I don't get the connection. Uh-oh, Kate focused beyond his shoulder. Mike looked behind him and then turned, one eyebrow lifted. I forgot I'm on house arrest. She watched Deputy Ramirez navigate between the empty tables. You're what? Good evening. Ramirez was all smiles. He glanced at the clock on the far wall. Or, I should say, good morning. 
Figuring you were probably still in the hospital, I came down from Mr. Ramsey's room to give you a report. Thought you'd appreciate knowing his abdominal wound was resutured. The doc says he'll be ready to return to jail soon. In the meantime, we'll keep him cuffed to the bed and station round-the-clock guards outside his door. Kate smiled. Thank you. You'll get your day in court, Miss Nielsen. With your testimony and that of others, I believe it'll be several years before he gets a chance to harass anyone again. I'm confused, Mike frowned. Did he escape from jail? And what's the deal with resuturing a wound? As I understand it, the deputy said, he was hospitalized after being knifed in county jail. The department stationed a guard outside his room, but someone drugged the officer and slipped Mr. Ramsey out of the hospital. Resting his hands on the table, Ramirez leaned closer. Off the record, he lowered his voice. I think the department owes both of you an apology for what we've put you through. Don't know why Caldwell has such a bee up his bonnet when it comes to you and your ranch, Mike, but I'm going to suggest our supervisor look into the way things have been handled regarding the Whispering Pines. Also, off the record, he turned to Kate. I have a hunch the drugs we found in your cabin were planted. You'll be glad to know we did not find contraband in your car. However, we discovered a GPS device in the left rear wheel well. What? Kate gave him an incredulous look. How did that get? She stopped. Now I get it. That explains why Ramsey told me he could find me no matter where I went. One more ding against him in court. The deputy offered a short salute and left. Kate stirred her ice cream, thinking of all that had happened, how the crazy day wasn't over yet, and how much she dreaded the trial. She'd have to testify, and her past would become front-page news. But then, today's confession was probably already rolling off the presses, and tongues. As Dimple had said, transparency was a good thing. She'd been able to tell so many people, including Manuel, how God changed her life. Mike tapped his bowl with his spoon. Oh, sorry, Kate blinked. Where were we? Gerald Ramsey, he said. How do you know him? And why are you on house arrest? She scooped one last spoonful of ice cream from the bowl. Mike would think she was a total slut if she told him the truth. But she needed to be honest, even about something so shameful. Time to walk out of the dark into the light. She lifted her gaze to his unblinking stare. Oh, how she missed his smile. Do you want the short version or the long? I'm going to read from Roger Pond's book, Take the Kids Fishing, They're Better Than Worms. And this one's called A Tough Sell. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of sales calls. I don't mind calls from folks I do business with, but those guys who go through the phone book calling up everyone are a pain in the neck. Some of my favorites are the hearing aid companies. They want to give me a hearing test. Our representative will be in your area next week and would be happy to stop by for a free hearing examination. What? You'll have to speak up, I tell them. I can't hear a word you're saying. We want to check your hearing, the caller shouts. 
No, my paint isn't smearing. We just got new siding and the roof is fine too. Then I hang up. That should stop them for a while, I surmise. Who do they think they're kidding? Calling up folks and suggesting hearing exams. If they want to give hearing exams, they should be sending letters. If they want to give eye exams, then call us on the phone. You can't call a deaf person and set up an appointment. If they want to give hearing exams, they should be sending letters. If they want to give eye exams, then call us on the phone. You can't call a deaf person and set up an appointment. I figure the hearing aid people are trying to sell us something we don't need. That's why nobody calls to offer eye exams. They send letters for those. Can you imagine this guy coming to my house to check my hearing? He probably has some fancy equipment or a watch that doesn't tick to convince me I need a hearing aid. These telemarketers remind me of the old-time vacuum sweeper salesmen, the ones who would throw dirt all over your rug and try to prove how good their vacuum was. The old-fashioned salesmen had to watch their step, though. Readers may have heard about the young sweeper salesman who arrived at a remote farmhouse with his vacuum and a bag of shop sweepings. This place was way out in the boonies, but the lady of the house let him in anyway. Peddlers were just part of the environment in those days, and a vacuum salesman was kind of a novelty. Our vacuum is guaranteed to outperform anything you have ever used or you get your money back, the salesman began. This is our top-of-the-line commercial model with 14 attachments and the extra-long cord. Then he tossed his bag of dirt on the cream-colored carpet and proceeded to unravel the cord. Don't you worry about your carpet for one minute, he said, searching for an electrical outlet. If this vacuum doesn't clean this dirt in less than 30 seconds, I'll lick it up myself. Well, I sure hope you skipped breakfast, the woman said. Because we're four miles from electricity, and that's a brand new rug you'll be eating off of. And with that, we'll be gone. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.